Heavenly Father, we believe you to be the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And as such, Father, you cannot and you will not tolerate sin. You must, because of your holiness and your goodness, you must judge all sin and all evil. And whether you do that now, in space and time, or ultimately when Christ comes again in glory, you will judge all sin and all evil. I pray, Father, in light of this revelation that you gave to the Apostle John so long ago, that we would see clearly the temporal judgments that are taking place around us. You would give us eyes to see and hearts to be rightly moved so that those who are perishing, those who are suffering, will not come before the great white throne judgment and experience a suffering that has no end. Father, give us clarity, I pray, on this passage this morning that we might not be confused by the symbolism of the horses or the horsemen or the martyrs under the altar. But more than clarity, Father, I pray that we would be faithful in our response to these truths. That we would be sober-minded. That we would be humble. That we'd be reassured in the fact that you are a just God and you will judge. And that we would be, as Kirk read, we will be great watchmen for you. That we will warn those who are in jeopardy of being judged forever. I pray you would do that for us as a church, Father, that we might be that brilliant light here in the Cambrian Park community and that the souls around us who do not know Christ would even this day come to see Him repent and be saved. Help us to hear, Father, I pray. Give us hearts to receive this word and be changed by it. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we get to Revelation 6 and the throne room, the joy of the throne room, Revelation 4 and 5, two of probably the most extraordinary chapters in the New Testament come to a screeching halt. Not that we, we're still in the throne room, but we're seeing movements now taking place back on earth. Um, and they're not just any movements, they are movements of judgment. And so, I pray that you say, you know what, the last two weeks have been so extraordinary, we want to stay there. It's always good to come into the presence of God, and it's great to, to just glorify Him and enjoy Him like that. But we have to come back down to this place in time, right? Christ has not come yet. The consummation of human history is not here yet. So there's work to be done. There are judgments to be made by our living God. If you remember in Revelation 4, we saw the angelic court the entire court, the four living creatures, the 24 elders who are angels, bow down to the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And you say, that, that was enough to put me over the top. But then we hit Revelation chapter 5. And in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, the Apostle John saw the Lamb. And he was the one that he realized was worthy to open, to take the scroll and open the seals. And so not only did the heavenly host begin to worship Jesus, the Lamb of God, but we're told all of creation participated in this worship of Him, for He was worthy. And then we pick up here in Revelation 6 with Jesus, that Lamb who was worthy because of His work on the cross to take the scroll and to begin to open the seals. Now the seals are the first of three judgment cycles in the book of Revelation. You have the seal judgments, you have the trumpet judgments and you have the bowl judgments. 
And each judgment cycle comes in a series of sevens. You have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And remember, that number seal in the book of Revelation generally means completeness or fullness. And so it's telling us that these judgments together are complete in fulfilling the vindication of the righteousness of God. They are complete in bringing justice upon all evil and all sin, vindicating the name of God who is holy, holy, holy. You see, a thrice holy God being perfectly just and perfectly good is unable to tolerate evil. He cannot, nor do you want him to. Otherwise, he too would become unjust and corrupt. And so one of the primary themes we see in Revelation, and certainly we're going to see it moving from chapter 6 all the way through the last few chapters of the book, is judgment of sin. Judgment of evil by the living God. Now our, our post-millennial friends who read the book of Revelation, they believe that all, most of, if not all of these judgments that we're going to read about took place before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So they said there's really no major bearing on our lives right now. And our dispensational friends, they say, well, most of these judgments, if not all, will take place at the very end of the age, the last seven years before Christ returns, in which case they don't have a lot of bearing on us right now. I have a different perspective, which I think the Bible clearly teaches. I am persuaded by the Bible that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls collectively describe the judgments of God on all of human history specifically from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ until he comes again in glory, with the bowls in particular being the elevation of judgment right before our Lord's glorious return. In other words, rather than describing the, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls as three distinct judgments of God in chronological order, uh, I believe, and I think the scriptures validate this, that it's a retelling of the judgment cycles. You have three judgment cycles, retelling, reiterating, recapitulating the exact same thing. Very similar, my beloved, to the four Gospels. The four Gospels tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from four different vantage points. I believe the judgment cycles are telling us that same thing. And so as we interpret it, we want to interpret it in light of human history, certainly from the ascension of Jesus until he comes again. I believe that's the most natural reading of the text, and I believe that's the most natural reading that aligns itself with the rest of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. So this, this morning, what I'd like to do with you, assuming that you are willing and able, I want to open up the first five seals of the scroll. And in so doing, I, I would like for us to do two basic things. I want us to understand what they mean because they're a bit cryptic. You've got different colored horses and horsemen and lots of things happening. So we want to understand what they mean. And then we want to say, well, then what is our response to it? How are we to respond to these judgments that are taking place? If we're not post-millennial saying, well, it happened in the past, therefore it's irrelevant. And we're not dispensational saying, well, it's going to happen in the future, therefore it's not pertinent. If we truly believe it's happening now, which is what we call the amillennial perspective, then the question for us is, what do we do with these teachings? How do we respond to God's temporal judgment his present judgment upon evil more importantly how do we live in light of these truths 
So I'm, I hope we can get there together. We want to live as those who have been redeemed by God, as God-glorifying sons and daughters, in light of his present judgments upon the earth. So let's consider how we do that. Let's consider it in two ways. Number one, our responsibility amidst the judgment. If these judgments pertain to history from the ascension of Jesus until he's come again, and he hasn't come again yet, then they're still taking place. What is our responsibility in the midst of them? And number two, I want us to see God's patience in judging. How God is very, very patient in how he judges. The theme of the sermon would be this, Christians glorify God as he judges the world. Christians are to glorify God in how we respond to his judgments as he is judging the world right now. All right, point number one, our responsibility amidst the judgments. Look at verse one. John writes. Now remember, John's still in heaven, right? He's still having the vision. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now remember, Jesus, the lamb who had taken the scroll from the one seated upon the throne, he has it now in his hand and he begins to open the seals. And we we already said the scroll is describing history from the ascension of Jesus till his coming again in glory. And so with each new scroll that he opens, a piece of that history is going to be revealed. What is going to be taking place between the two advents of Christ's first coming and his second coming? coming and we know that only Jesus was worthy to open the scroll because only Jesus gave his life in order to redeem fallen man right the story can't end as God had ordained it if Christ did not die for sinners like us and so what we see here in these first four seals they're judgments judgments that will come upon the earth by God judging evil and judging sin and so It's symbolized, this judgment is symbolized by four horses and four horsemen. I don't want you, I don't want this to be difficult for you. It's symbolic of God commissioning his judgment upon evil. All four. And they're just described different ways and they're described in how that judgment will take place. But all four horsemen represent God judging evil in space and time. Now we know that if you know your Old Testament and if you remember when we went through Zechariah, there's parallels here between Zechariah's horsemen and the chariots, if you remember, that God used to vindicate Israel, to judge the enemies of Israel. Well now we're just going to raise up the level here. These four horses and these horsemen are God's vindicating his name by judging all evil and all sin globally. In other words, they're not relative to, let's say, a nation like Israel or that particular location look at verse 2 John says and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came and came out conquering and to conquer now the identification of the first horse it's difficult it's just a hard one it's probably one of one of the harder ones in uh, the book of Revelation many believe that it is Christ and they they say well we saw Christ He's on a white horse in Revelation 19 and he's conquering the nations then, so this must be him too. And that's, that's a possible interpretation. They say that he's coming and he's conquering with the gospel. Um, that's possible. It doesn't really change the interpretation of this section. Um, in, in my studies this week, though, I, I'm not convinced of it. Um, in fact, that's where I used to lean. I've, I've changed in the last seven days, so there you go. That's what happens when you study, right? 
Um, I, I do believe the writer's a writer of judgment also. Uh, he fits, it fits more accurately in the context of four horses, four horsemen, all bringing the judgment of God. And this particular rider has a bow, which was an instrument of war. And the crown very likely revealed that he was going to be successful in bringing war upon the earth. In fact, one commentator put it like this, and I thought it was really good. He said, the, the white horse and the white rider introduce war upon the earth. And then the next three riders tell us how that war plays out. The first one by the sword, the second one by poverty and famine, and the third by pestilence, disease. And say so that, that, that makes a lot of sense in the context of this passage. So that's, I think that's the, the white horse and the horseman introducing and bringing war upon the earth. Okay? So look at verse 3. He opened the second seal. John said, and I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword, a great sword that was able to execute war upon the earth. So the second seal, remember each seal is going to reveal something that's taking place between the ascension and the second coming of Christ. And the second seal, he sees a red horse and a rider. The color red, very likely, was the color of blood right? Because there was going to be massive bloodshed across the earth. And he would do this, this rider would do this. Now notice this, this is the rider and the horse, they're symbolic. But God would be taking peace from the earth. He would be taking the peace away and in so doing causing people to what? To war. Causing people to war against themselves, to slay one another, nation against nation, neighbor against neighbor. In other words, this rider's responsibility was to incite hatred Man to man, over land, material goods, economic policies, political policies, ethnic divides, it did not matter. As long as he could take peace, he could bring war, and if he could bring war, he could bring death. And that's exactly how God would judge under this particular seal. Now, you say, well, that, that makes a lot of sense in the context of human history, because human history... If you read human history, if you know human history, war permeates the canvas. In fact, you can't take a history class and not hear about, read about, or study some war or multiple wars. Historians actually, estimates by some historians, place death by war at one billion people throughout human history. It's such an extraordinary figure to think that one billion people creating the image of God have died at the hand of another in battle. Now, now that should not surprise us as, well, I guess I should say 21st century creatures now, since we are in the 21st century. The 20th century, as most of you know, was the bloodiest century in human history. And, and conservative estimates place that 108 million souls died in 100 years. That's, that's, that's a million people killed by war every single year for a hundred years straight. It's extraordinary to think about. And yet we shouldn't be surprised because that's exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen during this time. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars. And then he said, see that you are not alarmed for this what? This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So we shouldn't be surprised that war has permeated human history because Jesus said it would. Look at verse five in the third seal. 
When Jesus opened the third seal, John said, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And you say, what is he talking about? Right, that, that's a little hard. It takes a little bit of, of looking at it, right? A denarius was uh, a, day, a day's wages back then, okay? So this black horse comes with the rider holding scales, and he's measuring out food. Now, it was understood, especially in, um, in the Jewish culture, that to eat bread by weight was an indication of famine, right? There was a limited amount of food. Poverty was abounding, Leviticus 26, 26. So a quart of wheat, they said, was able to sustain then one person, and, a quart, and three quarts of barley was able to sustain three people. Um, you say, well, I don't even know what that means. What's the relative scale on that? Well, normally, a person in John's time with a day wages could buy 12 quarts of wheat and 36 quarts of barley. In other words, what this black horse and this black rider are bringing is famine on a massive scale. There wasn't enough food, and as a result, people were dying. And there was a famine either because of war or drought or pestilence. Food supplies were running short and starvation and death resulted. Now the prohibition of the oil and the wine in the latter part of verse 6, again, that's highly disputed. I think it means that there's going to be a limit to the famines. It won't kill the entire population of the earth. That the oil and the wine will be guarded and therefore there will be a limit on this. Now again, if you've taken any history class of any kind and it was comprehensive in nature, not just dealing with war or economics or politics. Famine has also been and continues to be a major killer of millions of people, even this very hour. In fact, this is amazing, and I, I did not know this until my studies this week. The greatest famine in human history took place only 60 years ago. 60 years ago. You think, how could that be in the 20th century with modern technology? How could the greatest famine happen? China, 1959 to 1961, in three years, 55 million Chinese people died as a result of famine. 55 million. My beloved, at the same time, the population in the United States then, that would have been one in every three Americans dying as a result of starvation at that point in time. So, Famines are not new. Again, Christ said, Matthew chapter 24, there will be famines in various places in these last days. So again, we shouldn't be shocked by it, but that was a means by which and a means by which God is using famine to judge the world. So war, poverty and famine, and then the fourth seal is death in Hades, bringing death to a massive scale. Look at verse 7. And when Jesus, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts on the earth. And so the color of the pale horse, you say, well, that makes sense. This is, this is the color of sickness and death, is it not? This is the color we turn when death is upon us and knocking at our door. And the rider's name is, we don't, he's not hidden. His name is death. 
and Hades, his kingdom is with him. And he's bringing it upon the earth to judge sin and evil. In fact, he's given authority by God to take one-fourth of the earth's population by a variety of means. War, famine, wild beasts. You say, what can we add to that? Heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, dementia, suicide. In other words, death is a means of judgment by God. Now we say, well, that, that's not surprising. Genesis chapter 3, the consequences of sin, we know going back to Adam and Eve, it's death. Physical death and spiritual death. And so death, I know it's something we don't talk about a lot in the West. We don't even get close to it, right? When people get sick and dying, we put them in places to be cared for. And we see them, we visit them. And then when they die, we even have their bodies taken to the mortuary. So we don't deal with that either. We don't deal with death here well in the West. Many other cultures throughout the world are very familiar with it. They see death around them all the time, literally all around them. 69 million people die each year in the world. 69 million people. You say, well, how many is that? That's 189,000 souls each day. 78,000, 7,800 every hour and 131 people every minute. Now again, that's extraordinary. My beloved, by the end of this sermon, essentially 100 of these gatherings will have come into the presence of God in some fashion. Death is part of God's judgment. And again, you say, well, we shouldn't be surprised, Pastor. Don't you know your, your Bible? Luke chapter 21, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, what? Famines and pestilence, plagues, global pandemics. Now there's something we ought to be familiar with. Even, even three years ago, we should hear this much more clearly today in light of what happened over the past few years. Uh, just recently, I was reading through the the World Health Organization's assessment of COVID as of, as of late, and those they predict who have died of COVID or COVID-related complications from 2020 to present is at 6.6 million people. That's the same number of Jews approximately that died in the Holocaust. Due to what? Pestilence, disease, plague. So the first four seals, they're judgment seals. It's God exercising his judgment vindicating the righteousness of what? His holy, holy, holy name. And he does it through war and poverty and famine and disease and wild beasts and any other means that he sees fit because he is God. These are not divine judgments, my beloved, confined to the past, pre-70 AD. And these are not divine judgments that are slotted for the last seven years of human history before Jesus comes again. These are divine judgments that have been exercised by God for the past 2,000 years and will continue to be exercised by God until Christ comes again in glory. So the question for us as Christians is, what do we do with this? If this has been happening and is happening and will continue to happen until Christ says, what am I supposed to do with this? Are you scaring me, pastor? Well, in some way, yes, hopefully. One of the things we cannot do, my beloved, and I think it's easy for us to do in the West, is to consider all these things ordinary events as a result of living in the fallen world. This is, this is what happens. War, famine, disease, suffering, death. It just happens. It's part of life. Death is part of life. No, death is not part of life. Death is in contradiction to life. And certainly in contradiction to how God created in the beginning before sin entered. 
My beloved, God reveals quite clearly here that the imagery of the four horsemen and their riders is that he is actively judging human sin, has been for 2,000 years, and will continue to do so until Christ comes again. Now that, if that's true, that, I think that should be very sobering for Christians. If we believe that to be true, so rather than relegating every catastrophic event, war, famine, natural disasters, pandemic, we, we categorize say fate, chance, natural causes, Instead of doing that, John makes it clear here from his vision, now listen closely with all your might, that many of the things that are happening around us, many of the evil things that we see, the death, the plagues, the destruction, the earthquakes, the famine, the war, many of those things are activated by God as means of judging. A very different way to look at it. They're saying, oh yeah, you know, these weather patterns are adjusting, it must be global warming. You know, it's because so many people have so many guns that we're killing each other. It's the tribal factions in, the, in Eastern Africa that's causing all the famine. A very different way of thinking about it in the context of the book of Revelation. In other words, we must stop seeing everything through secular eyes. And I am guilty. We are guilty. We see everything through secular eyes. Right, so, so Putin invades Ukraine because he's a megalomaniac. Well, that's easy, right? It has nothing to do with God or judgment. Or COVID-19 was primarily mismanagement by the Chinese Communist Party. It had nothing to do with God's judgment. Or the famines in East Africa are simply a result of tribal warfare or corrupt governments. My beloved, oftentimes, oftentimes, there are forces at work behind the events that we see. There are divine forces at work, forces of divine judgment in particular. Now to be very clear, these revelations do not allow, be careful, oh if you, if you haven't, to, you got to listen really closely. They do not allow us to read the text and draw a one-to-one conclusion here. Which it means this, we cannot pair every war, every disease, every famine or death with God's judgment. We can't say that's, oh, I know why that's happening. And we certainly can't do it on a, on a one-to-one basis. Okay, So we need great caution here when we talk about how God judges the world. To do that, to say that we can, you know, I can determine, oh yeah, you got sick and you might die because God's judging you on this. Well, that takes new revelation, doesn't it? That takes more word from God, which we do not have. At the same time, I want to caution us moving the other direction. We become so scientific in our Western thinking that we have virtually lost this theological category that God judges in space and time. We've lost the category, and therefore we relegate everything to fate or chance or natural causes. That's also equally foolish and maybe even more dangerous. The four horsemen in Revelation 6 represent God's judgment upon the world now. Right now. That the holy, holy, holy Lord, God Almighty, is exercising judgment in space and time every single day. And that his judgments are what? They're a prelude. They're a foretaste, a foreshadowing of that great day of judgment when Christ comes again in glory and he what? He judges the living and the dead and his kingdom comes and has no end. Now for the unsaved, if this is true, if God is actually actively judging right now, then for the unsaved who continue in their rebellion, 
These judgments should be the cosmic wake-up call. Should they not? I mean, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, it should be, these judgments should be a megaphone from heaven to rouse the deaf ear for the unsaved. To see the death, to see the war and the pestilence and the famine and poverty and things, that's my end apart from Christ. It certainly should lead them to compel that, to repent and then to turn. But what about for us? And what are we supposed to do with this? You say, there is, Pastor, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This stuff doesn't touch me. What do we do? I mean, remember, John, Jesus is speaking, and they're writing to Christians. This book is not for the unsaved, it's for the church. So what are we supposed to do with this? There's some obvious responses. Right? I, I do believe that thinking and seeing the judgments of God on earth should humble us. There should be great humility when we see God exercising his judgment on space and time and taking the lives of those made in his image. It should strip away from us, I believe, any sense of self-righteousness. I mean, completely leveling us. It ought to remind us of how sinful we are and how our just desert, if not for Christ, would be the same. That we should be judged right now, not a moment later. I believe it should also sober us I mean, these, the, the idea of God judging and have been judging for 2,000 years should bring great sobriety to the Christian heart. Seeing God's judgment on others should cause us, I think, to reassess our lives and to examine, am I truly following Jesus? Am I truly saved? Am I exercising fruit in my life that bears testimony to my profession of faith? Or am I in jeopardy right now of being judged by God? So humility, sobriety, I think in part this revelation is coming to the churches who are suffering so much to reassure them that God is just, that God actually will punish every injustice. God will make things right. And ha- You want to hear that. You want to know that in the midst of suffering, don't you? Certainly the seven churches who were going through the, the horrible trials and tribulations of Emperor Domitian, they needed to hear this, that God, truth, justice, and goodness, not evil, not suffering, not death, God wins in the end. He will triumph. So there's reassurance to that and how glorious that is. So hearing about these judgments now should cultivate humility, sobriety, reassurance. I think those are obvious responses and they should be and I pray they are to you. But there's one and you probably got that from the title of the sermon, there's one that's missed by us. And it's a convenient miss in light of these contemporary judgments. And I want to bring it to your attention before we go to our last point. Seeing God's judgment, right, because you are wise enough to discern that. Seeing God's judgment and knowing what awaits all those who die without the Lamb, without the covering of Christ, it ought to compel us to be watchmen, to be what? Evangelists. To take the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the gospel, to explain the gospel, to call people not to perish. Because we know they are. And we see it happening all around us. It's not as though everybody's living really well and there's no disease and no famine and no war and everybody's living well and then Christ comes. There's disease and suffering and death now. And we say, wait a minute, that's judgment too. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he was given this great responsibility to be the watchman of Israel. He was to call out the truth. Let me read to you again 
parts of what Kirk already read, Ezekiel 33. This was Ezekiel's responsibility to warn. God said, Ezekiel 33, if I bring the sword upon a land and the watchman sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head, but not upon the watchman. Because the watchman what? Did his job. He warned the people. Then he says in verse 5, he heard the sound of the trumpet and he did not take warning. His blood should be upon himself That's those who do not listen. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. He's responsible, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Two guilty parties. The one who died in their sin and the one who did not warn them they were going to die in their sin. My beloved, as Christians, the church, we are the watchmen in the world. We are called by God to tell the people that judgment is here and judgment is coming and to escape through Christ. We are to sound the alarm. We are to warn the world so they too can respond to the gospel and be saved. And like you this very morning saying, these judgments I'm not, I'm not afraid of because Christ has redeemed me from them. My beloved, so that means when, when you're reading or watching the news of the bloody war in the Ukraine or you see those horrific pictures of image bearers this day in East Africa dying because they don't have food. When you see that, when you read about the mass shootings or, or the natural disasters in Haiti or Indonesia, you must remind yourself, don't become desensitized. These are real people with real families and real dreams just like us. And without the gospel of Jesus Christ, without the covering of the Lamb, they have no hope. They have no hope now and they have no hope in the future. Without Christ, they will enter into eternity to face the eternal judgment of a holy God without a Savior, a judgment so severe that it makes all the wars and diseases and famines and plagues combined look like nothing. A judgment, my beloved, where if we remain silent as Christians, if we do not warn the lost, we are culpable too. There's blood on our hands when those who perish without Christ never heard about Christ, never heard of the gospel, never heard that there was a way out of the judgment. Warning and sharing the gospel with all those in our mission field is our calling. I think it is one of the most loving responses to seeing God's judgment on earth right now. Instead of sitting back or saying, oh, those poor people, or, or sending a relief check, saying, you know what, I'm going to take action. God is judging, and those judgments are a foretaste of the judgment to come. I'm going to take action right now in my mission field, and I'm going to tell everybody I know, 
Every brother or sister, every family member or friend, every coworker, I'm going to tell them there's a way out. Now, they don't have to listen to me, but at least their death, their blood will not be on my hands. What happens, my beloved, when instead of our response to God's present judgment being watchmen, what if it's impatience? You say, you know what, it's sobering me, it's humbling me, it's reassuring me, but I'm also growing very impatient. What if you want God to move now? You say, come Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha is your M.O. What happens when your patience wears thin due to the suffering you're experiencing as a result of living in this fallen world amongst sin? What if, my beloved, your patience is growing thin because you have been hurt or loved ones have been hurt or our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world have been hurt and there's seemingly no justice. Where's the recourse? Where's the justice, God? Why isn't it rolling down? And you say, make it happen now, Lord. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. God's patience in judging. God is patient in judging and I think that calls us to be patient too. Look at verse 9. When he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, so the four horsemen now have been seen and they've gone out. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So the, the fifth seal's open and John sees now an altar and there's great discussion. It's in heaven. There's great discussion on which altar that is. I think it was probably the burnt, the altar of burnt offerings that makes the most sense. The altar, I mean, the altar of burnt offerings is where the, in addition to other offerings, the, the male, spotless male, one in the morning, one in the evening, was sacrificed on the burnt offering. And so John, he has this vision, but he doesn't see lambs that have been slain. He sees Christians, martyrs, who had been slain for the faith, who had been put to death for what? For their faithfulness to the word of God, for living their Christian witness out in a hostile world. And again, you said, this should not surprise us at all. Christ said in Matthew chapter 24, of these days... They will deliver you up to tribulation and what? And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So we shouldn't be surprised that under this altar in heaven, John sees many souls who had been murdered for their faith. Now for John to see their souls in the throne room was extraordinary. You see, even then... Even in parts of Judaism and Christianity, they thought there was this long time lag between someone dying and someone being in the presence of God. That there would be a wait. We have some very strange theologies today that are not biblical. What John is saying, which would have been a great encouragement to them, he sees their souls. Why are they bodiless? Well, they're bodiless because the final resurrection hasn't come. Right? Christ has to come to raise the living and the dead and reunite our souls with our bodies. So they're bodiless, but they're with God. And what's so extraordinary about that is that those who had lost loved ones, those who, who saw the, the horrible torture that Nero and Domitian were able to execute against Christians, they were seeing and now understanding that they were with the Lord. 
And those who were facing that same type of persecution, potentially death, could know, if I do die, I get to be with the Lord. Right? So it would have been a great encouragement for them to hear that John is seeing these martyrs before the throne. Look at verse 10. He says, they, these, these martyred souls, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, O sovereign Lord, you're in control. Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Now, I think I mentioned this already. Whenever you hear on those who dwell upon the earth in the book of Revelation, it's talking about those who refuse to follow God. It's the evil people still on the earth. And so what are they asking for? They're saying, these evil people put us, your children, to death. And you're doing nothing about it, Lord. We're here with you. Our bodies are in the grave because we followed you. We trusted you. So we want now, Lord, you're a just God. Exercise justice. Do it immediately. These people are what? They're getting away with it. They're getting away with murder. And not just murder, but murder of your people. How long, Lord, until you avenge our blood? And maybe they even quoted Genesis chapter 4. And they said, do you remember what happened with Cain and Abel? You did something then. Remember Cain and Abel? The Lord said to Cain after Cain murdered his brother. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. God acted upon the death of Abel. And that makes sense, my beloved. Under the law, the shedding of innocent blood was a crime that required immediate recompense. It was death of the murderer without delay. See, I know that's strange for us. Someone is sentenced to death here and they sit on death row until they die of natural causes. Not so in the law of God and not so in God's economy. Such evil, and they understood this, left unchecked, called into question God's sovereignty. Are you not able to do something, Lord? It called into question God's holiness. Are you not righteous? Will you not judge us? It even called into question God's truthfulness. Was he not going to be faithful and guard his people? Was he not going to do that? Now the answer God gives was not what they wanted to hear, I don't think at the time, but it's what they needed to hear and it's what we need to hear. Look at verse 11. After their request, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. (laughs) That's the answer they get. I mean, what are they in a hurry for? They got all eternity, right? So he says, rest and wait. In other words, he's saying, listen, the day of judgment is coming and it's coming soon. You must understand, we must understand, justice delayed is not justice denied. Justice delayed is not justice denied, my beloved. He gives them each a white robe, and we know now, white robe, it it symbolizes purity and righteousness. In other words, he's reminding them, remember, you're mine. Christ, the blood of Jesus, the lamb, paid for your sins. You're now with me. You're in the heavenly realm. I care about you. You're my son or daughter. Of course I will avenge your blood, just not yet. I will, but not yet a little bit longer. And then he tells them why. He actually gives them justification. Look at the latter part of verse 11. He says, rest a little longer until what? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
In other words, they, there were others to be martyred for the glory of God. Some that they were fellow servants with in their moment in human history. And others, other brothers and sisters who would also suffer, suffer persecution and death even today as we have a chance to pray on Sunday mornings for those being put to death for the cause of Christ. It implies, he implies here that there's a specific number that God has ordained for human history of martyrs who would be killed in the name of Christ. And that means not one person, this is an amazing thought, who gives their life for Christ, who is martyred for Christ, does happen by chance. God says, I know them. I've ordained the time. That's a glorious thought. He determines who. He determines when. He determines exactly how they will die for his glory. And that means, my beloved, that it's not only God's sovereignty over these events, but because they were underneath the altar, we understand that their death is in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You say, what does that mean? That means he's pleased with their death. He's pleased with their being martyred. Now, some of your faces, you go, oh. From our vantage point, now listen, from our vantage points, I understand that. The martyred person who dies in their faith at the hands of evil men. You say, that's, that's so unjust. They lose family, they lose friends, they lose their career, their ministry, their home. They lose everything by people who hate you, Lord. So the saints cry out, what? How long, Lord? From God's vantage point. From the divine perspective. Someone remaining faithful to the word of God someone giving their life as a testimony to Christ is precious to God. It's precious to the Lord. He knows that when we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel to the point of death by becoming martyrs for the faith, he knows this brings him honor and glory because it magnifies the power of the gospel, does it not? That someone would be so radically transformed from sinner into saint that they'd be willing to die for Christ. It magnifies the power of the gospel. It magnifies the power of the cross when those who are faithful give their life for the faith. And he knows something else, my beloved, which I don't think we truly believe. I really don't. I mean, I know we believe it in our heads, but we just don't believe it. God knows to die as a Christian is what? It is gain, gain, gain infinitely. I know we... We say that, but boy, we fight it. And we fight it with all our might. It is truly better for the individual in Christ to die and come into the presence of Lamb than to live whatever extraordinary, blessed life you can here on earth. And it is truly gained because the Lamb has made a way for us. It's not by chance that we make it into the eternal realm and experience the gain of life with God. It's because of the work of the Lamb. Remember, my beloved, we can talk about this great hope of man because the Lamb experienced all the effects of the horseman on the cross, did he not? On the cross, he received all that. All the effects, all the, the war and the sword and the pestilence and the famine, Christ bore upon the cross so that what? So that sinners like us, through repentance and faith, can avoid that eternal destiny, that great day of judgment. 
on the cross was Jesus not conquered by the wrath of God so that we what? We could be set free. On the cross, Jesus tasted the sword of God's wrath. He is God's martyr. So that what? So that he could die in vain? Of course not. So that he could experience the full experience of hell that we might have peace with God. We took that peace away when we sinned and God gives us that peace back through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. It was upon the cross that Jesus thirsted, did he not? Experiencing the famine of his own soul as his body was mutilated, as he bled to death. So that those of us now who hunger and thirst for righteousness will enjoy what? Streams of living water that flow from the throne of God forever and ever. Jesus tasted death and Hades in full, experiencing our judgment in our place so we could have life instead of death and heaven instead of hell. In other words, the judgments of God in the book of Revelation and the judgments that we see taking place ought to encourage us to persevere, to run the race really well, Even, my beloved, when you find yourself suffering now and maybe, maybe suffering as a result of the judgment that's taking place around you. And you can do this. You can suffer well and even give your life as a martyr for Christ, for God, because you know your eternal judgment, which you rightly deserve, the eternal wrath, the eternal sword, the eternal poverty, the eternal famine, the eternal sickness that we deserve as rebels against a holy, holy, holy God was paid in full by the Lamb. And therefore, you can say, there is no condemnation, there is no judgment for you because Jesus bore it on your behalf. There is for you what? There's only life with God. There is only his presence, his glory, worshiping, enjoying him just like the angels. That's it for you in Christ forever and ever. And you say, that certainly is gain. That certainly is gain. Now don't get too excited and say, all right, Jesus, take me now. There's still work to be done. There's still work to be done. But hopefully that work will press you to a place where you'd be willing to give your own life for your faith, knowing that gain is what Wait, you. So the saints cry out for justice like the psalmist of old. They want God to act now and God's saying, be patient. My timing is better than your timing. It's God. He made time. Certainly his timing is going to be better. He wants them to see and I think he wants us to see that suffering and persecution and even a martyr's death, it does not mean that he's not in control. What it means is that's part of his plan. That's part of his redemptive plan. His timing is better. Now, my beloved, that's easy to say. That's a hard pill to swallow when things are really hard. Right? You say, well, it's all God's timing. That's not the greatest response to give to people who are really hurting, by the way. Um, But we want to know that in our own hearts and minds. How difficult it must have been for those who were suffering at the hands of, of Nero or Domitian at that time I mean, some of them were being taken, loved ones. I want you to imagine a husband or a wife or a son or daughter being taken into the Colosseum because of their faith. Or, or those under Nero who he would 
he would take Christians and he would impale them upon a, on a pole and he would then cover them with oil and light them on fire and use them to illuminate the night sky. Right? Imagine that's your brother or your sister or your father or your son or your daughter. The torturous ways that Domitian, what he did to those who would not recant and submit to the emperor cult, how difficult it must have been for them to talk about the goodness of God or the justice of God or how God was there protecting and providing for them. How difficult, I was thinking as a husband and a father, how difficult for the man who had his wife and children taken away and tortured and murdered because of his faith in Christ. How difficult it must have been, my beloved, to stay that course and not question God's righteousness or his faithfulness or his sovereignty. Maybe, maybe you've gone through similar trials at the hands of others. And maybe you've been persecuted for the sake of the gospel and you've seen no retribution now and you're saying, Lord, why not? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you going against those who have been so harmful to me and so harmful to our church? I'm going to close. <laughs> One reason. There are several, but I'm just going to tell you two. We want to be thankful that God's patient in judgment. We want to be really thankful. Even patient in judging our enemies. You say, well, why? why is that? If there are enemies, we want God to judge. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 when they were questioning when Christ was going to return. When's Christ going to return and bring his justice and bring his glory? Peter said this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward what? Toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. My beloved, God's patience is an opportunity for your enemies to be saved instead of judged. And if we're going to believe Jesus, what he said, pray for those who persecute you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Certainly, if our heart is right with Christ, we want them saved more than we want them judged, do we not? And if you said, no, I want them judged, then you need to examine that before the Lord. That's not good. We must also be thankful for God's patience not coming in total now because of our own souls. My beloved, if Jesus had come a hundred years ago, you never would have been born. You'd have never had an opportunity to experience the eternal glory of God. I'll make it more personal for myself and you can apply it to yourself. Had Jesus returned in 1984... Had the Lord judged me in my sins by putting me to death, let's say, my freshman year in college, I would have been condemned to an eternity in hell rather than enjoying the promise of eternal life with Christ. I'm thankful for God's patience. We need to be very thankful for ourselves and for our enemies who we want to be saved. But lastly, we must remember that Delayed justice is not justice denied, ever. It's not. It does not nullify the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes in perfect justice, he will exercise justice on every sin and on every person throughout all human history who refuse him, 
who remain in rebellion. On that day, Christ will come. Listen, every sin and every evil will be judged completely and perfectly. Any delayed justice will be fulfilled on that day. So we want to be wise, my beloved. You have the wisdom of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 now with you. We want to be wise during this inter-advent period from his first coming to his second coming. For 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, history has been characterized by war and poverty and plagues and death and martyrdom. And it will be until Christ comes again in glory. These tragic events, the events reveal a God not who is unsympathetic, who is lacking control, but a holy God who is judging and will judge all those who refuse to bow down and worship Him and the Lamb who is worthy. So I want to encourage you to be wise in light of such revelations of judgment, not relegating them to the past, pre-70 A.D., or to the future, the last seven years of human history, but seeing them as a present reality And in light of their present realities, being a faithful watchman or a faithful watchwoman in your mission field. Tell people how appropriate as we engage in a month in thinking about missions and the redemption of the lost. Tell people, my beloved. There are, we are, as a church, we are, we have lots of family and friends who do not know the Lord. You have co-workers and neighbors who do not know the Lord. Judgment is here and judgment is coming. If they have not heard the gospel, then their blood's on your hands. Let's not have that. Let's clear our conscience. Let's, for the love of Christ, tell people there's a way out. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are there's a way out. These judgments here, Father, these temporal judgments that you've described here in Revelation 6, they're they're terrifying. And yet they're nothing compared to that judgment on that final day. Father, make us sober. Make us humble. Give us reassurance that these judgments will not be ours because Christ bore that judgment for us. And then... By the power of your Holy Spirit, out of the deep love that we have for you and for the lost, open our mouths so that we might be faithful watchmen and faithful watchwomen telling everyone and anyone who will listen that they don't have to be judged, that their end does not have to be death. Father, give us that love and give us that courage for the lost in our lives, for the lost here. I pray you would do that, Father, that you might be glorified, that as we suffer for the sake of the gospel, that you might be glorified in us and glorify yourself in the redemption of many. We ask this in Christ's most holy name. Amen.